Luke chapter 6. Two weeks ago, we began a study of the uh, disciples that we're calling ordinary men, extraordinary mission. And we're looking at these men because, again, if they were able to accomplish what they accomplished as just being ordinary nobodies, then we also can do the same kind of work and be Jesus Christ to our world just like they were. And we're going to learn from their example. Now, in three of the four Gospels, Matthew chapter 10 and Mark chapter 3 and also Luke chapter 6, and then also in Acts chapter 1, you have a listing of the 12 disciples. I'm going to just pick one of those lists this morning from Luke, the book of Luke. We looked at this list last week, as a matter of fact. But I want you to look at that list, if you would, this morning again. Look at verse 12, Luke chapter 6 and verse 12. And it came to pass in those days that he went up, Jesus Christ, went up into a mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called unto him his disciples. And of them he chose twelve, whom also he named apostles. Simon, all, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called Zelotes, and Judas the brother of James, and Judas Iscariot, which also was the traitor. Now, in each of the lists you find of those four places I mentioned to you, all 12 apostles are named, and all 12 of the same names are given in each list. In each account, these group of 12 are divided into three separate groups, uh, and there's four in each group. In the first group, you have Peter, Andrew, James, and John. In group two is Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew. In group three, the four listed are James, uh, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, and Judas Iscariot. In group one, Peter is always listed first. In group two, Philip is always listed first. In group three, James, the son of Alphaeus, is always listed first. So within each of those three groups of apostles that are listed, there's an order to them, and although the order may vary somewhat, all three, all twelve are there, and all are divided into those three different groups. In the book of Acts, Judas is not listed because he had been killed himself by then, and he's replaced by Matthias. However, in the Gospels where Judas is listed, and you'll notice it here in verse 16, he's always listed as the traitor. Can you imagine for all of eternity being God's book and listed as the traitor? That is how Judas is known throughout all the Gospels where he's listed. Now, the Bible never tells us that Jesus Christ put his disciples in any kind of particular order. However, we know how ordered our God is. And so it's not a surprise to us if he were to do that. And in fact, I believe it does seem that that's what he did. He put his disciples into groups, and one disciple was appointed leader of each of those groups. It also seems each of those ones in those lists were grouped in descending order in terms of their closeness to Jesus Christ. The closest being Peter, James, and John, and then going down the list after that. Now, practically speaking, and I just always find it interesting how God does these things, it seems like Jesus Christ, although he was God in his humanity, it was difficult for him, even with a group of 12, to keep all those men close to him. And so he kept three men very close to him. Others were close, but in declining order of intimacy as, the, as we go down the list. So even Jesus Christ in his humanity could not keep 12 men close to him all the time. And I don't believe any human leader should be expected to do that either. Now, these disciples were an amazingly varied group. What we learn about each of them as we watch them in action, we find their personalities, their ways of operating are very, very different and very distinct from each other. We can only find real similarities in the first group. All four in the first group were fishermen. Uh, the group is made up of two sets of brothers. Uh, they came from the same community, and all indications give us that they are, have been friends for a long time. Now, let's contrast that with some members of, of other members of the group. For example, you'll see Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector, and he was a loner. Simon was a zealot. 
He was a political activist, but also a different kind of loner. All the other ones came from varied backgrounds. Most of the backgrounds are unknown. And we also see differences in these disciples as we consider the personalities that made up who they are. For example, we're going to talk about more of this in a minute. But Peter was outspoken. He was eager. He was aggressive. He was bold. He had the tendency to say the wrong thing at the wrong time. One author called Peter the apostle with a foot-shaped mouth. And that's probably a pretty good way to describe Peter. John, on the other hand, spoke very little. In the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts, you have John and Peter serving together. They are constant companions. We don't have one incident in the first 12 chapters of Acts of John saying anything at all. Not one word is spoken by John. Now, that could be because Peter spoke so much, uh, John couldn't get a word in edgewise. But either way, we don't have John quoted at all in those 12 chapters. Now, think about Matthew. Before God called him, he was in one of the most despised professions in Israel, that of tax collecting. He was an employee of the Roman government. He would extort money from his own people that went to pay for the Roman occupation army, the army that the Jews hated. Compare him with Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot was at the opposite end. He was a part of the group that hated Romans, who conspired to overthrow the Roman government. Uh, Many of these zealots, we're going to assume as Simon as well, carried small knives with them. And they used those knives to assassinate members of the Roman government when they had the opportunity because they saw that government as the enemy. Uh, Simon the Zealot was probably one of the was a first century terrorist is really what he was as far as the government goes. So you've got Matthew, a tax collector and an employee of the Roman government and Simon, a zealot who is totally against the Roman government, working in the same place together in the same body of believers. Amazing how God puts those things together. An interesting group, to say the least. And that brings us this morning to where we want to focus both this week and next week, what I believe are one of the most interesting disciples uh, that make up the group of disciples, that being Simon Peter. Now, Simon was a very common name in that time. We have several men who are named Simon in the Gospels. We read the verses this morning in Matthew chapter 16, uh, verse 17. Simon's full name given to him at birth was Simon Barjona, which simply means Simon, son of Jonah. Uh, Jonah being another word for John. So Simon's father was named John, and he is called Simon, the son of John. That is all we know about Simon's parents. But when the Lord met him, as we saw this morning from Matthew chapter 16, uh, Jesus Christ gave Simon another name. He called him Peter. Now, Peter was not a name to replace his old name. Peter was a name added to the one originally given to him by his parents. Now, we did an entire message on this when we introduced our series on First and Second Peter. I'm not going to go through all that again this morning. But these two names are typically an indication of which nature Peter is operating under when he's reacting to things. And Jesus Christ would often use those names to call him out to let him know which nature was operating when he was doing what he was doing. So when the flesh is running the show, Jesus Christ would call him Simon. If he was operating by the new nature, Jesus Christ would call him Peter. If the Holy Spirit is influencing him, his speech and his reactions, Jesus called him Peter and not Simon. Now, not always the case, not exclusive, but the case the majority of the time. So in Peter, you have this. You have a clear example of what what living under the old nature and living under the new nature looks like just by watching Peter. And Jesus Christ changed his name to Peter in order for Peter to have a constant reminder of who he should be and how he should be reacting. And Jesus Christ could, could gently remind him of that simply by using a certain name to address him, watching his behavior. I'm going to give you a few examples of that if I could this morning. You're in the book of Luke. Go a few pages over to Luke chapter 22. Go to Luke chapter 22. I'm not going to have you look at all these verses this morning, but have you look at a couple. 
Luke chapter 22, look at verse 31. Uh, Jesus Christ here is foretelling Peter's betrayal, that he's going to betray the Savior. And notice what he says there as you, as you introduce this idea. Uh, verse 31 of chapter 22 of the book of Luke. And the, Lord said to si- and the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. You see, it was under the control of the old, old nature, uh, which takes concern only for the effects on the flesh uh, that happened, was in, in control when Peter uh, did, uh, betrayed Jesus Christ. Go to the book of Mark, if you would. Go to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. Uh, Jesus Christ is in the garden praying. He asked his disciples to wait with him uh, on a place by themselves uh, while Jesus Christ prayed, and then he would come back to them. He went to pray and came back and found them sleeping. And so look at Mark chapter 14, verse 37. And he cometh and findeth them sleeping and saith unto Peter, Simon, sleepest thou? Couldst thou not watch one hour? Watch ye and pray, lest ye enter in to temptation. The spirit truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. Here is Jesus Christ contrasting those two natures, and he uses the name Simon to let Peter know who's in control at that moment. Peter allowed the flesh to take control, and that was what had made the decision that he made. In John chapter 21, Peter decides that after Jesus Christ arose from the dead, uh, Jesus Christ then went back to heaven. Uh, Peter says, what's, what's, what's left for me here? My Savior is gone. And so Peter decides to go back to the old life. And so he goes back to his fishing career. You remember the story well. As he's fishing out there, Jesus Christ appears on the, on the shore. And he calls the boat in, and they come in. And then Jesus Christ, after dinner, has a conversation with Peter. In verse 15, Jesus Christ says, uh, it says, So when they had dined, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my lambs. He said unto him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my sheep. He saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Three times Jesus Christ asked Peter if he loves him. And embedded in those three questions is the implied one. Peter, do you expect to deny me again? Do you still have that in you? Do you expect to continue to deny me? Three times as Jesus Christ made that query to him, he calls him Simon. Clearly, those denials were based in Peter's flesh. Peter saw his flesh threatened and denied Jesus Christ to save that flesh. And the question from our Lord is this. Do you plan to allow the flesh to continue to have control? That's what he's really asking him. Now, that was the last time Jesus Christ ever had to use the name Simon. After that, it was Peter. Peter got it. And Peter was never the same from that time forward. Now, let me stop here and ask you a question. Has there been a time in your life when you've made the same decision? Has there been a time in your life where you made that full commitment that the flesh would no longer be running the show? The flesh is set aside. I understand the flesh can catch us off guard at times. I believe in a weak moment our flesh can get a hold of us. But has there ever been a time where you committed to allowing the Spirit of God to have full control over you and you decided this flesh is never going to control me again? Jesus Christ makes it clear and Paul also makes it clear that is a definite decision that we make. That's not just going to happen by some uh, miracle. It's going to happen when you and I make that decision. I want to read just some verses from the book of Romans, chapter 6, verse 11. This is Paul speaking. Here's what he says. 
He says, Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members, your members as an instrument of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace." Now, in those four verses, Paul gives us the specific decision that we need to make, and it's held in these words. Reckon ye, let not, neither yield, but yield. And there's the decision. There must come a point in time in my life when I mature in Jesus Christ to the point where I make that decision with the Holy Spirit's guidance, and I decide to allow the Spirit to have control and not back down on that decision. It just becomes the normal life that I live with the flesh in control. And with that decision made and with who's in control of my life uh, being settled, I can live apart from the flesh and I can live under the control of the Holy Spirit of God. And that just becomes a natural part of what I do as I make that decision. But you've got to make the decision. <laughs> you can't just assume it's going to happen because it won't. That flesh is powerful. It will control you if you allow it to. Reckon ye, let not, neither yield, but yield. And we see it totally possible in the example of the transformation of Simon Peter. But here's what we also know from the gospel record. If you know your Bible, you know this very, very well. For the most part, that's not who Peter was. For the majority of the accounts where we read about Peter, Peter is a man who vacillates. He wavers. He acted sinfully sometimes and acted like a righteous man other times. That flesh got control of him at times. And then he came to his senses and let the spirit in control. That was his entire life back and forth for most of the account until John chapter 21, really. And sadly, that is where many Christians are, are living today, living lives on both sides, sometimes serving God and sometimes serving self. And I'll tell you, you will never experience the victorious Christian life until you get off the fence and make that one time, once and for all decision to allow the Holy Spirit of God to lead you and put that flesh under control. Amen. You'll never have victory otherwise. You will never have victory otherwise. Never. Never. Now, with all that said, I want to look at some basic facts about Peter. First of all, we've mentioned, I'm sure you're aware of this already, Peter was a fisherman by occupation. He and his brother were part of a family of fishing, but fishers, they had a fishing business. They caught fish in the Sea of Galilee. Uh, his early career began in the small town of Bethsaida, but he soon moved to the larger city of Capernaum, I assume because there's more opportunity there. That's number one. Number two, and this is going to fly in the face of the tradition of the Roman Catholic Church. Peter had a wife. Peter had a wife. This idea of Peter being the first pope and being celibate is all refuted by just one verse of Scripture. I'm going to read it to you. Luke chapter 4 and verse 38. Here's the verse. And he arose out of the synagogue and entered into Simon's house. And Simon's wife's mother was taken with a great fever, and they besought him for her. Simon had a wife. Simon had a wife. I don't know what the Roman Catholic Church does with that, but Peter had a wife. And even worse, Peter had a mother-in-law. <laughs> If you're a mother-in-law, just a joke. Nothing, nothing serious. Number three, there is no doubt from the Gospels Peter was the leader of the apostles. Peter was the leader of the apostles. He typically speaks for the group. He typically leads the way in the things that they did. He was always in the foreground. And in fact, as we mentioned, as is mentioned more than one time in the Gospels, he spoke more than anybody else except Jesus Christ. 
In terms of the recorded words in the Gospels, you'll hear from Jesus Christ the most. The next person you hear from the most is Peter. Now, I want to tell you, I realize we can find example after example after example of Peter doing the wrong thing or saying the wrong thing. None of the other disciples rebuked Jesus Christ to the face except Peter. No one was on the wrong side of things as often as Peter was. And yet, listen to me, Jesus Christ chose him to be a disciple. And Jesus Christ permitted him to be the leader of the group of disciples. Now, I learned two things that I think are very, very important for us to hear. First of all, every event that occurred in Peter's life was used by the Lord to mold him into what Jesus Christ wanted him to be and what he knew he could be. Peter had he would instruct Peter and direct him in the right way to go. Oftentimes, oftentimes he would reprimand Peter, tell him he's on the wrong track and then push him to the right direction. Peter was impulsive. Peter was often off base, but Peter was also willing to step out and take chances and ask questions and confront what he did not understand. Every event in Peter's life was used by God to structure him to be what he needed to be. We have too many believers who are not spiritual leaders, the leaders God wants them to be, the spiritual workers God wants them to be, simply because they play it too safe. They play it too safe. Too many believers never accomplish for the Lord what he has designed for them to accomplish because they refuse to take risks and extend themselves beyond where they are comfortable. They never put themselves in the way of God's work. We're going to talk more about this before the message is over. But as a result of that, they never really do what God has equipped them to do. I'm going to tell you a truth, and I believe this with all my heart. If you want to be used by God, and I'm assuming if you're saved, you do. If you want God to really use you and do a work through you, if you really want to be the presence of Jesus Christ in your world, listen to me, you're going to have to stop playing it safe. You're going to have to stop playing it safe. If you want Jesus Christ to use you, you're going to have to start taking some chances. Start risking some things. Uh, Peter messed up a great deal, but he also accomplished some amazing things for the Lord. And I think that is partially because he never even gave thought to making those mistakes. <laughs> he just wanted to serve. He didn't care about making the mistakes, which maybe he should have cared more than he did. But I'll tell you, he just wanted to serve Jesus Christ. And so he stepped out. And when he went too far, Jesus Christ schooled him and kind of pulled him back in again. And Peter learned from that. And Peter matured. And by the end of this thing, Peter is the leader of the apostles both in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. That's number one. Number two, if we had known Peter early on and just observed him from the outside, just watched his life, we never would have seen him becoming the leader and the minister that he became. If you just looked at him from the outside early in his life when he was still fishing over there at the Sea of Galilee, from all outside appearances, you would have seen him as a mess up and a failure. Here's the wonderful truth, folks. I take heart in this truth. When Jesus Christ looked at him, he saw what we never would have seen. He saw a heart that was dedicated to the Lord. That's what he saw. And God set aside the outward appearance and God honored the heart. God honored the heart. Now, there may be people in this room this morning. And from all outside appearances, people would say about you that you will never amount to anything for the Lord. Look at them, hear them speak, never expect any great work to come from them because of how they present themselves. Now, if that describes you, if that's how you think you are this morning, let me ask you a question. How is your heart? I'm not talking about the outside. How is your heart? Uh, What do you truly desire when it comes to the work of the Lord? Folks, I will tell you your skills and your abilities and your personality and your liabilities mean absolutely nothing to God. He couldn't care less. 
All that he wants is a heart that is fully dedicated to doing his will. If we have that, God will take care of all the rest. Just make sure you have a heart that is fully desires to serve him and know him. If you've got that, God can use you. I know that because God used Peter. He's our example for that. That's all that Peter had, and God used him in a mighty way, and God can do the same thing for any person in this room, any person whose heart is fully dedicated simply to serving him. Now, I want to park ourselves there for us of our time this morning. I want to talk about Peter's heart, and I want to talk about three things in the heart of Peter that made him able, usable in service to God. And God, these things were in Peter, or God manufactured these things to put them in Peter. But either way, these three elements existed in the heart of Peter, and these three things made him the useful servant that he was and the leader as time went on. Now, again, some of this stuff is in Peter's wiring. It's just what he was born with. But I also believe there are things we can work on to develop in our lives to make us spiritual leaders and make us spiritual workers that God wants us to be. So here they are this morning. Number one, Peter's inquisitiveness. Peter's inquisitiveness. Peter was always asking questions. If you read the Gospels, Peter's always asking a question. He always is seeking to learn what he doesn't know. And so instead of him being concerned about asking something that would make him look stupid, Peter asked no matter what anybody thought. And Peter learned a great deal about ministry from the Lord as a result. If you read through the Gospels, you'll find Peter asked more questions than all the other apostles put together. (laughs) He was always asking. It was Peter in Matthew 15, 15, and also in Luke chapter 12 and verse 31, who asked Jesus Christ to explain the difficult sayings he had just given to them. It was Peter who in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 21 asked Jesus Christ how often he had to forgive somebody. It was Peter who in Matthew chapter 27, uh, Matthew 19, 27, asked what kind of reward they would get for leaving all to follow Jesus Christ. It was Peter who in John chapter 21, verses 20 and 21, posed questions to Jesus Christ after he arose. He always wanted to know. He always wanted to understand better. And the clear message is this, folks. To do God's work, God's way, we've got to realize. You ready? Get your pride under control. We've got to realize that we don't know it all. (laughs) If I want to serve God, I've got to realize I don't have it all together. Now, you know that. I need to know that. You don't know at all. Uh, there's things you can still can learn, and we need to be able to learn those things. We may have, may have been saved a long time. We may have learned a great deal during that time. But God always, always, always has something to teach you Amen. if we're open to it, if we're open to it. And God can use anybody to help us learn what we need to know. You know what every person in this room needs to do if you haven't already done it? If you want to serve God like he wants you to, become a student of the word of God. Become a student of the Word of God. Get into that book and talk to people and ask questions of people who seem to be blessed by God in the work they're doing. We will never be leaders without God's knowledge and we'll never gain that knowledge until we make a determined effort to seek out Jesus Christ as Peter did and ask questions. Number two, number two, Peter's initiative, Peter's initiative. Peter was a starter. Uh, Peter might not have been a finisher all the time, but Peter was a starter. Peter never held back and waited for somebody else to get things going. Peter always made the effort to get things rolling on his own. Uh, A couple of weeks ago in our uh, Sunday school hour, we looked at uh, an event from the book of Mark. That same event is recorded in Matthew chapter 6 in verse 13. Jesus Christ asked the disciples a question. He says, whom do men say that I, the son of man, am? 
And in verse 14 of that chapter, the disciples give various answers to him regarding that question. And they say this. Some say thou art John the Baptist, uh, some Elias, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. We read this to you this morning. But then Jesus Christ makes it very, very personal. He asks them in verse 15, but whom do ye say that I am? I don't care what everybody else thinks. Who do you think I am? And Peter answers in verse 15. Uh, he says, uh, Simon answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Amen. Now, we would expect Peter to answer that question. Uh, we're not surprised that he did. He's the one who would uh, jump in and answer those kinds of questions. Now, remember in school, some of you have to see if I know it's a long time ago, but remember in school, teacher would ask a question, and you knew the answer, you knew you knew the answer, but you didn't want to look stupid by maybe giving the wrong answer. And so what you did instead is kind of, you know, put your head down and suddenly found something very interesting in the book that you want to read. Or uh, Matt's doing some questions on Sunday morning at 9.30. I watched some folks as he asked the question. They all, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> we do that because we don't want to look stupid. Uh, Peter didn't have that trouble. <laughs> Peter never thought a minute about looking stupid. He just wanted to jump out and give what he wanted, what he wanted to say. You see, here's the deal. Uh, Peter understood who Jesus Christ was, and Peter was willing to speak out about that. Those other disciples would sit and look at each other, afraid to speak, afraid to be the, say the wrong thing. Peter never worried about that. Peter took the initiative to speak and took the risk that he might be wrong. And Jesus Christ answers Peter in verse 17 of that. He says, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Peter took the initiative, and God blessed him for that. Let me give you one other example of Peter taking the initiative. Jesus Christ is in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Roman soldiers come, and they're going to capture him and take him to trial. A Roman battalion at that time would consist of about 600 soldiers. So 600 in the battalion, probably many more in that garden that day. You know, Jesus Christ was such a desperate criminal, they had to have many, many people there to capture him. <laughs> Here's what it says in John 18. John 18, verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and smote the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Now, think about this just for a second, just practically. You've got at least 600 soldiers around. And Simon Peter decides to take action. Now, it's not clear if he intended on taking the entire, entire army on one at a time. But whatever he had planned, he was certainly a better fisherman than he was a swordsman. <laughs> because he, I'm sure he was going for the head. All he got was the ear. And Jesus Christ corrected him for doing that. But I want to tell you something, folks. None of the other disciples did a thing. They watched his whole thing go on and never did one thing about it. Now, Peter may have done the wrong thing, but at least he did something. At least he stepped out. He might have caught that guy's ear, but at least he did something to try and defend his Savior. Only Peter took the initiative. I remember back in Deuteronomy. In fact, I'm going to have you turn there. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 1. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 1. I haven't been in the Old Testament for a while. Let's get in the Old Testament for a minute. Uh, actually, Deuteronomy chapter 2 and verse 1. The disciples are, I mean, rather, I'm sorry, the, the children of Israel are, are getting into the promised land. And so they're getting some instruction from, the, from Moses before they go. They're going to make this final push. Now, I want you to see what God says to them. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 2 and verse 1. <clears throat> Then we turned and took our journey into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea, as the Lord spake unto me. And we compassed Mount Seir many days. You know what compass means, right? What's compass mean? 
Round and around and around and around. They're compassing Mount Seir many days. And the Lord spake unto me, saying, You've compassed this mountain long enough. Turn you northward. <laughs> You've gone in circles enough. Go forward now, is what he's saying. <laughs> what was going on there? Well, I think they were afraid to go. I think they didn't know what was going to happen. And so they just thought they're just going to keep moving. You know, activity looks like you're doing something. Let's just keep moving. And maybe by doing that, God will just let us off the hook. Until God finally says, stop going around the mountain, folks. Go forward. Go forward. Here's what I've learned in church. And I'm glad not so much in this church, but I've learned this in church from other places. There are believers who are simply satisfied to circle the mountain. Just go around and around and around instead of taking any kind of initiative to go where God's called them to be in their service to him. Peter, for all his faults, was not a mountain circler. <laughs> he was always ready to go northward. Even if it wasn't the right direction to go he was, or the right time to go, he was always ready to do that. I think, I believe, there are some people in this church who could do great things for God if they would simply stop going around the mountain. If they would simply take initiative and move forward to do the work that God needs them to do. There are too many believers who wait for somebody else to take the initiative and then they go along with it. Too many wait for somebody else to start a ministry or for the church to start a ministry and then they attach themselves to that. Over my years of pastoring now, more than once I've had somebody come to me in the church and say, I don't understand why the church isn't doing this. I don't understand why we don't start a ministry involved in this. Now, I don't say it outwardly. I don't say a lot of things outwardly, but inwardly I say to myself, great idea. Why don't you start that? What they're saying to me is, I think it's a great ministry. Why don't you get this thing going? I'll take part in this. And my response would be to say, why don't you get it started? It was your idea. God gave it to you, not to me. Why don't you get started on it? Now, again, I don't want to be misunderstood. I appreciate those folks who attach themselves to the ministry of this church. I appreciate that. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. What I am saying is, maybe you're the one that God wants to use not to support a ministry, but rather to start a ministry. Maybe you're the one God is calling to get something going. Maybe you're the one that God is calling to stop circling the mountain and go forward with the ministry idea that God has given to you. I believe God wants every believer in this room, every believer listening this morning, to move forward to some work that he wants done. We simply need to seek that out, listen when he reveals it, and then move toward it instead of circling the mountain. God will use those who simply choose to step out and move where the work is, just like he did with Peter. As crazy it might seem when he gives you the idea, just move forward on it. I'm going to talk to you more about that before the day is over. Here's the third element in Peter's heart. It is the element of involvement. Involvement. A spiritual leader, a spiritual worker, is that one who is in the middle of wherever there is spiritual activity. Now, I'll tell you, I had a great example of that this week. I stopped by three of the nights when there was Bible school. And, you know, it's like this flurry of kids. I mean, they're just like all over. There's like this, this mound of kids. And these workers like parked in the middle of them, <laughs> trying to get things under control, trying to direct them in the right way. That's what it was all about. You know what that is? That's putting yourself in the middle of the spiritual activity. Those kids needed somebody to direct them, and there you were, right square in the middle, doing that for them. That's what Peter did. Peter involved himself in spiritual activity. Peter involved himself in ministry. True leaders, one author said, true leaders are those who go through life with a cloud of dust around them. <laughs> I like that. It's a great image. 
not sitting on the sidelines, telling others what to do or directing others in a particular way, getting themselves in the middle of the action and doing what God wants them to do. Listen to me. We will never get God's work done or lead others if we remain, remain distant from the work. Kind of look at it from afar. Gaze on it from a distance. Never going to happen. You'll never be used by God in that way. And the best example I can give you is found in Matthew chapter 14. Turn there if you would. Matthew chapter 14. A very, very familiar story, I realize, but such a great image of what we're talking about here with Peter's involvement. Matthew chapter 14. And you know this story very, very well. In fact, everybody knows this story. Even those who don't know the Bible know this story. The disciples are out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. It's the middle of the night. They are trying to fish, and a fierce storm comes up. And that storm is rocking that boat back and forth, and the waves are high, and the wind is blowing. This storm is fierce. And in the middle of that storm, late at night, they see Jesus Christ coming to them, and he's not coming to them off the shore. He's walking on the water coming to them. Now, I don't know about you, and I'm going to be ashamed to admit this to you, but I'm going to admit it to you anyway. My first thought, if I saw that happening, would not be to say to myself, I need to jump out of this boat and see what Jesus is up to. I would be hanging on to the sides of that boat, just wishing that that storm would go away, just like all the rest of those disciples were. I want you to look at verse 28. Matthew chapter 14, verse 28. And Peter, and Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. <laughs> Lord, if it's really you, call me out there. Who says that? I mean, who, where'd that thought even come from? Verse 29. And he said, come. <laughs> Peter, you want to come? Come on. Come on. Look at it. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. You ought to underline those words. He walked on the water. <laughs> Peter says the first thought he had, I need to jump out of this boat and see what Jesus is doing. And so Jesus says, come on. And Peter gets out of that boat and walks on the water to go to see Jesus. Peter was not content to sit in that boat and look at Jesus from afar. He wanted to go right in the middle of where Jesus Christ was. And Peter saw Jesus Christ do something that very few others saw him doing because he was determined to always be a part of the action. And by the way, only two men in the history of the world walked on water. Not just one. There were two. Jesus Christ and Peter. And he did that because while the rest of those disciples were hanging on to the side of the boat like I would have been, clinging to their seats in fear, Peter was involving himself with the work of the Lord that God wanted him to do. When Jesus Christ was taken to Pilate's hall to be tried and condemned, only two disciples followed him to that scene, John and Peter. And only one of them was so close that when he denied the Lord, he was able to look into the eyes and see the, the, the disappointment in Jesus Christ's eyes as he was there. Now, I'm not condoning his betrayal at all. Understand that I'm not. What I am saying is, even when things seemed hopeless, Peter was there. He was unable to abandon the work of the Lord completely. He tried to stay as close to the Lord as he possibly could, even in the midst of horrible circumstances. Even when things seemed hopeless, he wanted to be in the heart of the action. Now, I'm going to make a confession to you. And I'll probably make some folks mad this morning, but it's good for us to get a little boiled every once in a while, right? I don't, and this is just me talking now, please. This is just me talking. I don't understand people who don't make the effort to be in church whenever the doors are open if they're able to come. Now, I realize there's reasons why people can't come. I get that. But I don't understand why people who could come don't come to church. I don't get it. I just don't understand it. 
I don't understand why people sort of float in and out of church, like it's some sort of a community event that they can kind of come to or not come to, whatever they choose to do. I don't get it. And I'm going to become even more offensive, especially to you folks watching this morning. (laughs) I don't understand people who choose to stay home and watch a service online when they're able to come in person. Now, again, if you can't come for some reason, I get that. I'm not saying anything about that. But if you could be here and you're not here, I don't get why you're not here. I don't get it. And you may switch off right now. I'm just telling you how I feel. I mean, no gospel here. I've looked at it from all sides. I'm not passing judgment on anybody. Please hear me. I'm not telling anybody is sitting. You decide for yourself how you do these things. I'm simply saying to you, I don't get it. I don't get it. And here's why. Matthew 18:29 says this. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Amen. What that means is, Every time we come to church, Jesus Christ is already here. Jesus Christ never misses a service. Not one. He always shows up. And that means at any moment while we're here, Jesus Christ could do something that would simply knock our socks off. Anytime. It could happen this morning. It could happen before we leave this place. He's a very tricky guy. (laughs) Has all kinds of ways of doing things. And I'm going to tell you something. This is just me talking now again. This is up to you. You make your own decision. But if he's going to do something here, I don't want to be on the sidelines when it happens. I want to be right there in it. I don't want to be watching on a screen. I want to be there to see it happen. I want to be. I don't want somebody telling me about it later. (laughs) Say, hey, guess what happened in church today? I want to see it for myself. Because when he does stuff, man, it's something. It's something. Now, again, that's your call. You do whatever you're going to do. What I'm saying to you is, I don't want to be outside the action when Jesus Christ is going to work. Here's something else I don't understand. Since we're on this thing, I'll just air all my dirty laundry this morning, all right? I feel so good. I've got to tell you. Sorry, you have to, sorry you have to get, get into all this. but I don't understand why some Christians have to be begged to serve Jesus Christ. I don't get it. I don't understand it. I don't understand why we don't have lines of people asking what they could do. I don't understand why we have some, some kind of event formed or something we're going to be doing. Why we don't have so many people to do it. We, don't have, we have too many people. I don't understand why that doesn't happen. I don't know why some folks have to be pleaded with and begged, have their arms twisted to do God's work. If God is working, why wouldn't we want to be in the thick of it? <laughs> why wouldn't we want to be first-hand participants in the work that God was going to do? I mean, there's nothing going on anywhere else that's more important than God's work, is there? <laughs> I mean, there's nothing going on that's any more exciting than God's work, is there? Is there anything on TV, anything online, any sporting event or community event that is greater than being an active part of the work of the Lord? I can't find it. I can't find it. This week makes me sick because of all the fanatics that come out about football. And you couldn't get them that fanatic about Jesus Christ if you paid them. It's there. They have the, they have the, 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 the passion. It's just all directed to the wrong place. And I'm afraid there are some believers, not necessarily about football, but just in general, who have their passion directed in the wrong place. I want to see God work firsthand. When God said to me, Chuck, you want to start a church? I said, okay, I'll do it. Because I want to see what he's going to do. I just wanted to watch and see what happened. I might become a miserable failure, but I want to see what he does. <laughs> and that's why we did what we did. We will only see God do what he wants to do. We will only see what God has called us to do. We'll only see God do amazing things through us and around us if we put ourselves in the middle of where the action is. 
and it might be inconvenient and it might be scary and we might have to step out of a boat in the middle of a storm uh, and, and try to walk on water. But you know what? I think it would be all worthwhile if that gives us the opportunity to walk on water. <laughs> If God says to Baca, step out of that boat and just start walking, and you may be surprised what I do, I think it's worth the risk. Just me talking. But I think it's worth the risk. God's going to present some things to us that seem crazy. Wait till the day's over. That seem crazy. But if he's in it, go with it. Go with it. Or let's, let's see if he's in it. If I can walk on water, folks, I'll step out of the boat anytime. <laughs> anytime. One more point, I'm going to close. You look at these three elements that make up a part of what, who, what made Peter who he was. And as you look at those three things, you will say to yourself, well, those are good qualities for any leader. I mean, any CEO, any president, any administrator, any manager, they would do well to have those three characteristics. If we're simply speaking in terms of human leadership, those qualities are all that is needed to make a great leader. And yet I have met people in the church who have those same three qualities and they are not leaders. In the church, they may be leaders in their community, but they're not leaders in the church. They're not doing the work that God has called them to do. Why is that? How could that be? If they have those three qualities, isn't that enough? Well, when it comes to God's work, it isn't enough. It may be enough in the world, but it's not enough in God's work. There's one other step Peter took, and that's what the step we also must take if we want to be leaders of of the work that God's called us to. Acts chapter one, verse eight. I quoted it to you last week. You shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you and you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Jesus Christ says, I'm going to send my spirit and that spirit is going to give you the power that you need. And we find on the day of Pentecost, that spirit came down and Peter worked in the in the in the uh, power of that spirit and accomplished great things for God as a result. Folks, you can have all those qualities I mentioned to you this morning. You can have all three of those. But unless you are under the control of the Spirit of God, they don't mean anything. And you don't have to do anything with them. Great workers for the Lord are those who take the qualities that God has given to them and surrender those qualities to the control of the Spirit. And if we won't do that, we will be the most qualified losers in the church. Have the qualities, but not using them for the, for the glory of God. Our ability to lead God's work. Our ability to accomplish what God has for us to accomplish, our ability to present Jesus Christ to our world is completely dependent upon who it is that we give full access to in terms of our skills and our abilities and our life. Unless he is in charge, unless he is in control, we may accomplish much in the world. You're not going to fulfill his calling for you. So, Peter, we're going to talk more about him next week. He was impulsive and he was rash and he was bold and he was impetuous. But when Peter got it right, he became a leader in the work of the Lord. And we have what we have today. You are here today because of the dedication of the work of the Apostle Peter. Now, how about you? Who's in control of what God has given to you? You can be a leader in God's work. You can do all these calls for you to do if you simply surrender everything that you have to him under his control. And the only question I have to ask you is this. Will you do it? Will you do it? Let's pray.